Spotlights is a series of online events and publications focusing on a particular group of victims and survivors who are often hidden from services. As part of our spotlight on domestic abuse and homelessness, my colleague Deirdre met with Lucy Watson from Fulfilling Lives. In her interview, Lucy talks about how Fulfilling Lives hopes to change the way that services come together to support women experiencing domestic abuse and homelessness and why these changes are vital to more effectively supporting survivors. Lucy, thanks for joining me today to talk about domestic abuse and homelessness. Okay, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So you work for a project called Fulfilling Lives, which is part of a London-based homelessness charity called Single Homeless Project. Can you just start out by telling me a bit about what Fulfilling Lives is and, and why it was developed? Sure. So um, Fulfilling Lives is a big lottery-funded um, initiative um, set up to work with people that have multiple and complex needs um, across the country. Um, so I work in Fulfilling Lives, Islington and Camden, which is one of um, 12 projects across England, um, and we've been running since 2014. Um, and really, the overarching aim of the Fulfilling Lives initiative is to look at bringing about long-term system change um, in the way that services are um, delivered and, and commissioned um, for this client group. So um, in, in this context, when I say people with multiple and complex needs, um, so everyone that we work with um, has unmet needs in the areas of homelessness, um, substance misuse, mental health um, and offending behaviour. So yeah, everyone we work with um, when they refer to us is experiencing um, issues in, in those four areas and obviously sometimes more as well. Um, so um, my project particularly in Islington and Camden, so we run a frontline assertive, uh, assertive outreach service um, working with, currently we've got 74 people on our caseload um, and we do kind of long-term holistic casework with them um, in order to, you know, bring about positive change in their lives, um, link them in with services um, which they previously might have not been able to link into because of, um, you know, the multiplicity of their needs and um, issues that they're experiencing as a result of them. Um, and kind of the other half of our project is using our frontline work as an evidence base to work with other services and commissioners to, um, yeah, as I said, try to create an evidence base for saying that services need to be um, changed or reconfigured to work specifically with this group that might have been um, previously falling between the gaps between services because they've got so many needs which they're experiencing uh, all at the same time. So yeah, that's, that's a bit about fulfilling lives specifically. Okay. And what made you realise that women in particular with these experiences weren't being provided with adequate support? What made you think that, that there needed to be a system change? 
Um, yeah, so initially when our project, um, when the business plan was written before we started, um, focusing on women actually wasn't one of the um, specifications of that business plan. And um, within a year of us running our frontline service, we uh, were increasingly realised that there was a real unmet need there um, for a couple of reasons, really. So firstly, um, 50% of our overall caseload um, are women. Uh, now, if you compare that to average um, homelessness statistics for the two boroughs that we work in, they're usually around 15% women compared to 85% men. So obviously we saw you know, a lot more women coming, being referred to our service than than we perhaps anticipated. Um, and with kind of the volume of the women that we're working with, we realised that there was a specific need to, to look at maybe why that was. Um, I think part of the reason that we're seeing a lot more women come into our service is because um, we don't just work with people who um, have been verified as rough sleeping on the streets. So um, normally um, for someone to access homelessness services, they'll need to be found um, by the local outreach team um, actually sleeping rough and verified that they're there. Um, we know and other services know that um, there's a real issue of kind of hidden homelessness with, with women. So women might um, be more reluctant to access mainstream homelessness services because they tend to be male-dominated. Um, women tend to remain um, in really unsafe situations um, to avoid actually getting to a point where they're sleeping rough on the street, but, you know, they're safer surfing or, you know, living in very unsafe places um, in order to... Um, you know, not get to the point where they're actually sleeping out, but nevertheless, they are very much homeless, um, but maybe, you know, much more difficult to find um, than maybe the male rough sleepers are. So because we had the flexibility to accept referrals from any service across the two boroughs that were coming across women that had these needs, so we take referrals from, um, you know, prisons, probation, substance use services, um, GPs, um, homeless hostels, so kind of any agency that's coming into contact with these women we were kind of um flexible about how uh they, they came into our service and we were then able to kind of go out and find women that were previously not maybe coming to the attention of services before and therefore not being brought into support okay so just so i understand what your service does you provide a frontline service to to these women and you're trying to create a model for the best way for, for working with women with these multiple experiences and multiple disadvantages that creates an evidence base for other services or? Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we have a, a team of um, frontline link workers um, and they're all able to work with people that present with complex needs. So they have individual specialisms um, in different areas such as homelessness or substance misuse, but we are able to also work with individuals around all of their needs holistically when they first come to us. Um, we recognise that it's very difficult for people um, with multiple and complex needs to kind of initially engage with a range of different services around each one of their needs. Um, so we um, work really intensively and assertively with them on an individual basis to start with and then slowly over time um, endeavour to link them in with the other services that they that they need. So, And we also have um, a team of peer mentors, we have a team psychologist, um, we work with a psychologically informed, trauma-informed approach to casework, um, so to try and really understand what's been going on for these people, some of whom have been bouncing around different services for you know 20 or 30 years in some cases, um, and to really kind of look at the underlying reasons for their needs and um, start to understand how to, to work with them going forward. Okay, that sounds great.
And so when you when you mentioned multiple and complex needs, you mentioned um, substance and alcohol use, you mentioned offending behaviour, mental health, um, homelessness. Where does domestic abuse often come into that equation or is it often a part of that equation as well? Yeah, so for, for the female clients that we're working with, again, domestic abuse, violence and abuse wasn't um, specifically written into um, our project business plan as one of the areas to concentrate on. But um, very quickly, the need to look at that specifically arose just because of the sheer uh, volume of cases that we were seeing of it with, with the female co- cohort. So um, when we looked into it, I think after about the first year and a half um, of, of working, we saw that around 90% of of um, our female clients um, were either currently experiencing domestic violence and abuse or had previously, so kind of really quite staggering statistic. And that's obviously in addition to all of the other needs that they're experiencing as well, which our project is set up to work with. Um, And part of the reason that we wanted to focus on that more as a project is because what we were finding was when... um, domestic violence and abuse was kind of going alongside all of these other needs, you know, homelessness, um, offending, etc. It was really, really hard to actually get these women into specialist support services around domestic violence and abuse. You know, we could refer them um, to the local domestic violence services who are brilliant, but, you know, these women sometimes don't have phones, they can't turn up for appointments because their lives are, you know, very difficult and chaotic. And so it was really actually difficult to bring them into the support that was available because, um, you know, DB services in RRA don't have much capacity to go and do outreach, for example. Um, So we realised it was a real kind of prevalent need and a real unmet need around this female cohort and also a very, you know, a a serious one as well um, with, you know, women, you know, some of them quite regularly having um, some really kind of high-risk, you know, dangerous kind of situations that they were experiencing again and again and... um, we realised that we didn't have the expertise within our project to kind of maybe be delivering the interventions um, in that area, which which we would have liked to. So we realised that, you know, it necessitated a kind of focus on that to maybe look at what we could do cross-sector um, to try and come up with a better response. So you're finding that IDVAs, for instance, didn't have the capacity or probably the breadth of experience around these women's multiple needs to adequately respond and that you needed to work together to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, if I think if we could get IDBAs, um to the women, then their, you know, their knowledge and expertise um, and support would be obviously incredibly useful. But it's more a case of when we're talking about women who might be, you know, rough sleeping with their perpetrators um, in, you know, relationships where they're dependent on the perpetrator um, to, to procure drugs. Uh, they don't have mobile phones. As I said, they've kind of got a long a series of not engaging with kind of any support services, let alone one which is especially around domestic violence. It's just that the IDVAs weren't really able to reach these women. You know, it's the domestic violence sector is very underfunded. Um, IDVAs don't necessarily have the capacity to kind of go out and try and assertively engage with people on the street. Also, that also calls into question whether that practice is safe. And I think there's a real need um, 
for us to kind of, yeah, start to have a dialogue um, with DVA agencies about, you know, what they could do, what we could do, and try to come together to deliver some kind of intervention. Because what was happening was these women were maybe known about, people were concerned about their situations, but if they couldn't, you know, be brought into support services to sit down and have that conversation around their options, um, they were just, they were not being engaged with at all around around the DVA stuff. So, yeah. um yeah, we just realised that there's kind of a gap between between the two services that needed to kind of be brought together and, and looked at again. Yeah, I think TV services generally are built in a way to engage with women who meet a very stereotypical image of what a woman experiencing domestic abuse looks like, that her yeah. primary need is domestic abuse and she wants to engage with the service and come to the office and exactly. call up and, and if you've got this multitude of needs that makes your life even slightly more chaotic. I'm guessing it's very difficult to engage with a service built for somebody who engages in a very stereotypical way. Exactly. You know, things like safety planning, just, you know, the safety planning... Um that you know is, is is generally done by with with people, um, but just it wasn't applicable to women. As I said, that maybe living on the street, uh, maybe kind of living the kind of lifestyles where you know that they're not in residential settings. Even um, they can't, they don't have ownership of their own funds. Um, they may not have mobile phones. So it's a really different kind of um, level of need that that we're talking about, um, and also people that women that. Um, may not feel able or willing to want to um, exit those relationships. Um, they may have a deep distrust of the police because of kind of their own offending behaviours, so they're not likely to um, press charges or make statements. But within that, we still felt that there was a lot of work that could and should be done, even if it was just about starting to have the conversations about you know, what's a healthy and an unhealthy relationship or kind of building women's self-esteem um, and making sure that they did know their options. So should a time come when they did feel that they wanted support in that area, they would, you know, have a rapport, have a trust where they'd be able to know how and where to ask for help, even if they weren't engaging kind of with, with appointments or with um, safety planning as kind of is, is, is currently known. Yeah. Definitely. And I think a part of the domestic abuse response is providing um, emergency accommodation for women who are fleeing domestic abuse as part of their experience. How, how do those housing responses, such as refuge, meet the needs of the homeless women that you're working with, or do they not? Um, I have to say, in the main, they do not, and that's, that's purely an issue of resource. You know, we have very, very few... Um, complex needs refuges available in London, you know, very, very few bed spaces. Um, and even those that are there, sometimes the, the women that we're working with, their level of need was deemed too high to even access those refuges. Um, that's kind of one kind of one major issue that we had. Um, another one is, you know, approaching the council to make homelessness applications um, on the grounds of someone's vulnerability as a um, someone who's fleeing domestic violence and abuse. Um, you know, we've had cases that have been discussed at Marrick and we've had supporting evidence from the chair of Marrick to say, you know, this woman is clearly in need, um, clearly at very high risk and has other needs. Um, and that's still... Um, you know, when, when we've approached the council to make homelessness applications, um, those women have still sometimes been turned away, not been deemed priority need. And then, you know, we then have to try and get a solicitor involved um, to challenge that decision. Um, and all the while, we're trying to kind of um, support and hold someone that continues to be very chaotic, continues to be in an unsafe situation. And sometimes... Um, 
you know, when a woman has, has clearly said to us, you know, look, I'm, I'm ready, I'd, I'd like to exit this relationship, I'd like to be able to go somewhere safe. If then on that day when we've got that window of opportunity, um, we try and do that piece of work with her and she gets, you know, turned down or knocked back or whatever, um, you know, that can almost be re-traumatising in itself that the one time she's asked for somewhere safe to go, we're actually unable as a service to provide it. So that's been something really difficult as well. Yeah, I can imagine that that's very frustrating for you and for them. Absolutely. I know that in developing fulfilling lives, um, you did a multi-agency learning event. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. What What did you find? What were the kind of outcomes? So it was it was really interesting, actually, because, as I said, we did have professionals from across um, a whole range of sectors. So, you know, from substance use to domestic violence and abuse, homelessness. Um, and we had frontline practitioners there. We had commissioners there. Um, we had some people with lived experience there kind of sharing their ideas and expertise from their from their own histories, which was you know incredibly useful. Um, and what was interesting and actually what was positive was that um, predominantly the, the main themes and the main challenges were perceived to be the same across the sectors um, and the recommendations for change were pretty much the same. So um, there's, there's a few kind of major themes um, which emerged, um, one one being the idea which we decided to go go with in the end, which was that for women, and we're talking about kind of women that have the most complex and multiple needs, you know, the, the kind of high end of those, those issues, um, so a proposed idea was for them to have um, one um, complex needs outreach worker um, that could work with a small, small, a small cohort of um, Marek cases who previously had been maybe referred to Marek and, you know, no positive outcomes achieved, and to see whether over a period of time um, of 18 months, whether they could work intensively with these women, not just around um, domestic violence and abuse, but around all of their needs together to see if they could generate more positive outcomes um, just in the areas, not just in the area, again, of DVA, but in terms of um, homelessness, in terms of, you know, engaging with drug treatment, all of their needs, um, and to see whether that worker having the outreach capacity, having the ability to intensively support these women to go out to meet them, um, to work holistically, um, whether that could bring about... Um, you know, something more positive than had previously been seen for these women that might have been referred multiple times. Again, they're really high risk. Everyone's very worried about them, but then there's no one person to kind of coordinate their support um, and track them and walk alongside them. Um, yeah, so that was that was kind of the main theme that emerged. There were some other really useful recommendations as well. Um, one was experts by experience. So a lot of people were saying that, um, you know, Survivors of domestic violence abuse and, again, people with lived experience of complex needs should be much more involved in both in providing, um, you know, frontline peer support to people that are currently going through similar issues. Um, there is acknowledged that it can be an incredibly difficult thing for women to talk about. You've got to build a lot of trust before maybe you feel able to say to a professional that, you know, that's that's happening within your relationship. Um, so that was a recommendation, but also that the voice of, voices of people that have gone through it themselves and current clients who are still going through those things um, should also be listened to by um, people that are maybe the decision makers about you know, how services are going to be developed and commissioned in the future. So that was a predominant theme as well um, and something else which we're, we're keen to focus on going forward about how we can um, maybe catch those voices and channel them up to the, the decision-makers to make sure that that's happening more. Yeah. 
And um, one thing that you previously mentioned to me was about um, trauma and needs-informed practice. What does that mean? So, again, I think that's about understanding the people that we're working with and coming across, not just in terms of their presenting behaviours now, but in terms of, you know, all of their life experiences, which has made, which have maybe brought them up to this point. Um, so, for example, a lot of the women that are on our caseload have been um, evicted from lots of supported accommodation projects because of, um, you know, incidents, challenging behaviour, them finding it very difficult to manage their impulses, um, you know, whether under the influence of substances or when they're very distressed. Um, and I think um, in terms of a, a trauma-informed approach to working with those and understanding those pre presenting behaviours now, it's about us as professionals really looking at you know, the trajectory of these women's lives, um, a huge amount of the people that we work with, not just women, but men too, um, have experienced childhood abuse, sexual abuse, for example. Um, they've also been through so many um, services over the years, a lot of them are care leavers, for example, that they've built up um, massive barriers and massive distrust towards services and professionals now. So obviously when they're being expected to engage in a certain way um, or behave in a certain way, that might be far more difficult for them than um, we may imagine. So I think, yeah, a trauma-informed approach is really needed if we're to understand why people are, you know, struggling to engage now, why people are maybe finding it um, difficult to live in supported accommodation environments, where those behaviours are coming from and starting to explore those behaviours um, with the clients in relation to what what might have gone on for them before um and the, i think the ultimate goal is for for those people to be able to access um proper psychological support and talking therapies although as we all are aware it can be you know lots and lots of barriers to that dual diagnosis being being a major one but um yeah i think it's really about kind of building the capacity of staff that are coming across these these clients to look further than you know the, maybe the challenging behavior or the revolving door and actually look at why and start to explore that with that person to see if we can find a different way to work with them going forwards. Great. So, so out of these recommendations, you created this pilot where you provide a single point of holistic contact for individuals who have multiple and complex needs who have come under MARAC for high-risk domestic abuse. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So we, we haven't started the pilot yet. So yeah. we've got to the point where we've now kind of um, just finishing the service specification, which actually we've done um, with consultation from some of the women that we're working with now. So we wanted them to be very much a part of... Um, you know, if they were going to be in receipt of the service, uh, what, what they'd want from it, um, what kind of worker they'd want, what kind of approach they'd like to be taken. So that's been done in collaboration with them. Um, and we're now at a, at a point where we're about to kind of put that out for a, for a mini tender for someone to deliver the pilot. And then that's going to be running for 18 months. I mean, I envisage within within that pilot, we're only talking about a very small cohort of women. I, I think about eight it's going to be yeah. assigned to one worker. Great. Um you know, all of these issues for a lot of individuals are very intertwined um, and really no single response seems to be enough to support an individual. What, what's kind of been your massive point of learning so far from this about the way the social sector should be responding to individuals? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a massive question, but um, I, think, <laughs> I, I think I do believe for, for the individuals, especially that we're coming across, that you know do have the, the highest unmet level of needs in in all of those areas. I think it is about funding services that initially are 
complex needs services. So it's kind of one worker that can start to build trust and build rapport with an individual, um, you know, be able to support them to a certain extent with every aspect of, of what's going on for them rather than um, asking them immediately to go off to three or four different appointments for each of their individual needs a week um, and start getting support that way because we know from the sheer volume of um, referrals that we get to our service that you know those existing services are wonderful but if people aren't getting through the door of them because they're just not able to um, then then there's people out there whose needs are still not being met so I, I do think it's about um, you know complex needs workers who are able to work flexibly um, with an assertive outreach approach um, I think it's about flexibility as well so it's not expecting people to um, you know want to engage with lengthy assessments and paperwork uh, not expecting people to be able to necessarily have you know the formal key work meetings and things like that I think it's about and as we said earlier kind of going back to asking clients or people that have been previous clients of services what has and hasn't worked for them and I think that's a really good starting point um, but yeah I, I do believe um, you know cross-sector it's not about addressing needs in isolation for that really high-end group it's about looking at the whole person and and starting with that um, building relationships and then you know slowly making inroads to the other services that are available around them um, and also I, I, I do think it's about as I said exploring kind of more uh, creative solutions around housing you know housing first being a great example which is you know um working with people that you know have the most multiple and complex needs and supporting them flexibly and holistically in their own space um, and letting them set the agenda for their support going forward so i think funding more and more um things like that uh, would, would hopefully be a really positive way forward i think a lot of the advice through these um interviews coming forward has been one worker who provides quite a holistic responses and kind of the, I guess, the one person that all of those other services and voices filter through, that they have very low caseload, that they can engage with that person when and if they need it. I think yeah. a lot of different services want to provide that, for instance, IDVAs, but there's never capacity or funding for it. How, do you, how do you provide, a, I guess, a convincing response to the whole funding issue why do you think it, it should be funded what's the kind of cost benefit of it I think um, in order to do that we have to really look back over people's years of not having that service um, and using services kind of sporadically and chaotically so um, repeat short prison sentences A&E admissions um, bouncing between supported housing projects with multiple evictions um, and maybe you know what something that we're doing is tracking um, someone's service use prior to our service over say a long period and looking at um, you know the high costs to you know the public purse um, and also the high cost to that person themselves in terms of you know they're not getting interventions which are working for them um, and then you know compare that to funding a you know one complex needs worker that can track that person, walk beside that person and deal with all their needs holistically at once over a period of time um, and hopefully demonstrating that the benefit of that, though it might be expensive to start with, um, is actually you know a massive cost saving if you look at the trajectory of someone's life. If they don't have that service and they continue to use services chaotically, um, ultimately 
you know, first and foremost, that's, you know, going to be really awful for that individual, but also it's um, costing a huge amount of money with, you know, very little benefit. So I think I think the argument for cost saving is there. And I think what we need to continue to do um, is really build that evidence base to show that if, if someone does have that, that single worker that can work intensively, that can really understand all their needs um, and how they're interrelated over a period of time. And it's not a short period of time. You know, we've been working with some of our people for over two years and then we see progress. It's sometimes quite slow because, as you can imagine, we're working with, you know, sometimes, as I said, 20, 30 years previously when things have been really going not very well for them. Um, but over time, we, we, we are seeing real progress. So I think I think the evidence is there. It's just about um, gathering more of it and finding ways to demonstrate it. Great. Well, we'll be really interested to hear how, I guess, this project goes once it gets on the ground and running um, and see yeah, what your definitely. outcomes are. So okay. best of luck with that. Thank you very much. And thank you for doing this interview. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Safe Lives Spotlight on domestic abuse and homelessness, please go to our website, safelives.org.uk, where we will be uploading new content every week from different experts between the 7th of August through to the 15th of September. And we want to hear from you. We need your views, experiences and practice or tips. So join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SafeAtHome and get involved on the Safe Lives community. Thank you.